0: Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us here on our online platform. We're excited to continue through our series in the Gospel of John. We're also very excited that our small groups are going to be kicking off here very soon. Uh, Starting September 21st, we're going to be jumping into our small groups. and, And we're really excited about that. Just been talking to our pastor, Pastor Matt, who's in charge of that. And he's excited about it. He's talking to his leaders, his small group leaders, and they're excited about it. They're excited about it. He's excited about it. I'm excited about it, and I think you should get excited about it as well. And the reason is because one of the best things that we have to offer here at Valley Bible Church is our people. Our people are great, and, and you know that. I mean, you've probably been here maybe for a while, and you know how great the people are who come to Valley Bible Church. And, and maybe you just started coming uh, and, and checking us out here at Valley Bible Church, and, and maybe a friend brought you, and, and you really love them, and now you've met some more people, and you really love them as well. So this is a great opportunity for you to get around other great people and study God's word. And I guarantee you, if you jump into a small group, it's going to radically change your spiritual life. And I think it's going to make it really, really great. So we're excited about that season kicking off. We're going to jump into our series. We're going to jump right into our pastors this morning. But before we do, I want to ask this question. Okay, I want you to think for a moment and ask this question. Is Jesus a good political candidate? Would Jesus make for a good political candidate? Now, I know what you're thinking. Uh-oh, here we go, right? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, oh, honey, don't get the coffee. Just, just, just come to the couch. you got to hear this. Pastor's getting political. This is going to be good. Right? But I want you to think of that question seriously. Is Jesus a good political candidate? Just, just think for a moment. What do you look for in a political candidate? Oh, you want somebody who's trustworthy, right? You want somebody who has good character. Well, man, Jesus definitely has those two things. So in that criteria, yes, Jesus makes for a good political candidate, but not so fast. Because there's a key characteristic that we look for in a candidate, and that is this. Do they represent us? Do they represent our will? Can, can we trust them to put our voice into action? We want somebody who's going to take our thoughts, our opinions, our convictions, and put them into policy. So in that criteria, is Jesus a good political candidate? Can, can we trust him to do what we want him to do? Can we trust him to take our voice and put it into action? Well, I think on that criteria, the answer is no. No. No, Jesus is not a good political candidate. Because, you see, Jesus does not represent the will of the people. Rather, Jesus represents the will of God to people. Jesus does not put our voice into action. Rather, Jesus gives us God's voice and tells us to put it into action. You see, in a democracy, the will of the people moves up toward the candidate And then the expectation is they will step that movement further. But that's not true for Jesus. See, really, the reverse is true. Jesus' will moves toward us, and the expectation is that we will move that will further. Jesus does not take orders from us. Rather, Jesus gives the orders. Really, Jesus acts more like a king than a candidate. In fact, that's our big idea for this morning. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. If you're going to take one note, I want you to write down this one sentence. And that is this. Jesus is not our candidate, but our king. Jesus is not our candidate, but our king. And we're going to see this in our passage in John chapter 6. We're going to start with Verse one, And here's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see Jesus perform a miracle. And this miracle is going to get people excited. People in the group are going to see this and they're going to have this political agenda. And they're going to get so excited by the power that Jesus displays that they're going to think, Hey, here's our guy. Here's our candidate. He's going to put our agenda into action. And here's what Jesus is going to do with that. Jesus is going to reject that. Jesus does not want to be their candidate. Jesus does not want to fulfill their agenda. Jesus is not looking to put their will into action. And what we're going to find is in Jesus' rejection, we're going to learn a lot about his agenda. So let's jump right into our passage, John chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 1. Again, what we're going to see is Jesus display power. This caused political interest and excitement and then Jesus is going to reject that, showing himself not to want to be this group's candidate, but rather to be king. Let's start with verse one. This is John chapter six. It says this. "After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, verse two. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, what's going on? Let's just stop right here because a crowd is starting to gather. People are starting to come. And the reason why they're coming, it says because they saw these signs. Jesus is healing the sick. Jesus is performing miracles. And so people are getting excited. I mean, if you want to capture people's attention, surely this is a really easy way for you to do it. I mean, just heal a sick person. And I'm sure a crowd is going to start to follow you. This is what's, what's happening with Jesus. Now, before we get maybe too excited about this kind of positive movement of this crowd, we have to remember that just because somebody uh, believes in a sign, just because someone shows interest in Jesus, doesn't mean that they're fully ready to trust Jesus. In fact, they may have uh, a belief that is not something that Jesus is actually going to entrust himself to. We saw this in John chapter 2. Jesus performed a miracle and the the crowd got excited. It says that they believed in him. But it wasn't the belief that Jesus was looking for. Because in John chapter 2, it says that Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew their heart. He knew deep down what was going on. And he was not approving of what was going on in their heart. So Jesus would not entrust himself to them. So we have to be skeptical just right up front. Yes, this crowd is gathering and yes, they've seen these signs and they're starting to follow. But we should be skeptical as readers to say, yeah, but that doesn't mean that they're fully bought in to who Jesus is. And we're going to see this later as it plays out when Jesus retreats actually from this crowd at the end of our passage. But let's go to verse three. Let's kind of build the scene a little bit more. Verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, this is a really important detail to recognize. Because this shows us how politically charged the crowd probably was. And the reason we know that is because of the date. It's the Passover. John tells us this is a feast of the Jews. Well, this was... Probably the feast of the Jews. This is one of their highest holy days. This is, this is a great day. Uh, for us, uh, kind of in an in a, in American mindset, this would be like the 4th of July. Right? The 4th of July for Americans is our celebration of our independence from Britain. It, it, it's when we finally became a nation. It, it's when we formulated our independence. And so we recognize that. And, and on the 4th of July, no matter what's going on, People are excited, and there's a sense of, of, of nationalistic zeal and excitement. We're proud of who we are. We remember the past, but we also look toward the future, right? To, to, to be a better nation, to to make good on the promises and, and, and the pledges of our founding fathers, to work out what does, does, does freedom and the pursuit of happiness mean for every individual in our nation, right? It's a, it's a really culminating Moment for us. The same thing is true for the people of Israel. You see, the Passover was a remembrance of the past. The Passover was when the Jewish people were freed from the slavery of the Egyptians. It was they, their day of independence. But it wasn't just a day where they looked backward. Just like us on the 4th of July, we look forward. We think about who we can be and how we can be better. As a nation, so too the Passover was the same thing. Especially now in first century Palestine, when most of the region was dominated by Roman occupation, where they had another authority that was placed on them. So they're celebrating Passover, their, their day of independence, yet they're under Roman occupation. So they're, they're celebrating liberty while they're still, in a sense, in bondage. So they're looking forward. They're thinking of a, of a future deliverer. They're looking for a hero, somebody to come. And what Jesus is going to do is in this kind of politically charged setting, he's he's gaining interest. People are excited. We could say his poll numbers look good. It's a day that's already charged politically. Jesus is going to perform a sign that's going to be so incredibly powerful, and it's going to look a lot like Something that reminds them of one of their greatest leaders. The leader of their Passover, their first Passover, Moses. The one who led them out of Egypt, led them into their independence. And he's going to perform a miracle that looks exactly like something that Moses did. And this is what really charges up the political environment of our scene. But let's get to that miracle. Verse 5. Lifting up his eyes, this being Jesus, then saw, or sorry, lifting up his eyes, then and seeing that a cra- large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, what's going on here? Well, this is a logical question, honestly, to expect. Jesus is performing uh, these miracles. Uh, Jesus sees this large crowd, right We know later in, or we know in other gospels that it 's getting later in the day, so now food is really uh, starting to become something that 's important. people are uh, are getting hungry. You can hear the the grumbling of the collective tummies, if you will. so something has to be done about this. So Jesus turns to Philip, which is logical because Philip is actually from this region. We know he's from Bethsaida, which is in a a town near this region of where they're at. So Philip would know all the best places to eat. He would know, hey, In-N-Out Burger is right here. They're going to be able to supply all of our needs. Don't even worry about it. Right? That's the idea. Now Jesus has has something different in mind. He's not just looking, hey, Philip, find the stuff on Yelp. Let's see what's available. Let's see who can hold a crowd. Now, Jesus is intending something else. This is a test. Right, look at what Jesus is doing here. Verse 8. Or, sorry, verse 6. He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Jesus already had a plan. His plan was going to be perfect, he was going to meet the need of this great multitude. But he wanted to include Philip because he wanted to test him. It's something very common that God did in the Old Testament. He would often test his people to see if their faith was true, if their if their dedication to him was true. We see this in, in many of the patriarchs, many of the big heroes in the Old Testament. God tests their faith to see if they truly believe in him, that he'll come through in the end. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is testing Philip. Now, is this fair? Is this, is this a fair test? I mean, if you're Philip, you're staring at this, this mass of people. What we're going to know later, one of the details mentioned for us by the gospel writer John, and there's 5,000 men, which that means the number could be upwards of 20,000 people total 5,000 men were counted. So if you think of women and children as well. So we're talking, this is a large crowd. So when Jesus asked this question, where are we going to get some food for, for these people to eat? And Jesus is, is, is formulating this as a test. Is it fair on Philip? Is it fair for Philip to even be able to pass this test? I think the answer is yes. As strange as it may sound, I think it's, it's a yes. Then why is that? Well, one, we've got to look, what does Philip already know of Jesus? I mean, we're in John chapter 6. Philip has been there since the beginning. So Philip has seen many miracles already. He's already seen Jesus display much power. We saw just a couple weeks ago, Jesus heal a man who was lame for over 30 years. A man who was paralyzed, and then Jesus spoke to him, and then immediately he could walk. Philip saw that. So he already knows that Jesus is capable of performing miracles. We also know if we look at the other gospel accounts of this miracle, they mentioned that Jesus was actually not only just teaching this crowd, but he was healing some of the sick who were actually there. So it's fair to assume that Jesus could have just healed somebody and then turned to Philip and asked the question, it could even have happened that Jesus was actually healing somebody, in the process of healing somebody, and he asked the question of Philip. He could be saying, like, well, Philip, I'm, I'm going to heal this man, and, and he's going to start walking, so I'm going to lay my hands on him, and then you're going to see his legs start to move. And maybe his legs started to move, and this man started to feel like he could walk again. And as he's about to get up, he says, hey, by the way, what are we going to do about food? And then he finishes the healing. It's a very fair assumption to make that that could have been what occurred. We also know that there are several food miracles recorded in the Bible. There's a big one in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 4. The great prophet Elisha is able to provide for a hundred people when only 20 barley loaves are given to him, which is not enough. What's interesting is this detail about barley loaves is actually going to be mentioned right here. It's the same thing. The same thing given to Elijah or Elisha the prophet in 2 Kings chapter 4 is the same thing that's going to be given to Jesus later here. It's interesting that John would mention that specific of a detail. It's not just loaves of bread, it's barley loaves. Same thing mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 4. In fact, how John describes the situation, the one who brings the barley loaves is a young boy. And the Greek word used of young boy here in this passage is the same Greek word used twice in 2 Kings chapter 4 to describe Elisha's servant. The one who mentions that this food's not going to be enough. So I think John is being very thoughtful here in tying our minds to this old testament idea philip would have known this as a good uh jewish man who got teaching as a young boy he would know this story he's seen jesus heal he's seen jesus perform miracles he knows that there are food miracles in the scriptures he knows about elijah he knows what happened there he's also seen jesus perform a food miracle Like I said, Philip was one of the earliest disciples and he was there at the wedding of Canaan, one of Jesus' first miracles. And that's where Jesus turns water into wine. So when Jesus asked this question to Philip, is it fair that he's testing him? Absolutely. Philip should have said something like, you know, Jesus, this is impossible. We can't do it. The the need is too big. It's just impossible. But... I know what you can do. I've seen what you can do. And I believe if you want to feed all of these people, somehow you're going to do it. That's what he should have said. But let's look at what he said. Totally underestimating the power of his master. This is verse 6. Sorry, verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. What happens to Philip? Immediately, his mind starts running like a computer. He becomes like this, this cash register, right? Who, who starts thinking, how much is this going to cost us? If, just to buy even a little portion of bread for everybody, that we don't have enough money to do that. There's no way for us to do that. So his answer is one of just hopelessness. Well, another disciple kind of butts in, speaks up, And really gives kind of the same answer. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, who happens to be from the same town of Philip, so he's familiar with the region, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these for so many? What is he doing? Now, Andrew thinks a little different. Maybe he's a little more resourceful or more practical right philip's a a little more theoretical he looks at the crowd and he starts crunching numbers in his head andrew on the other hand has this boy who maybe has come up to him kind of shown some initiative he he's heard that jesus wants to feed these people and so he goes hey i've got this stuff so he goes to andrew nudges him and says "Hey, hey hey brother andrew here's what i have and andrew looks at it and says okay jesus here's our resources clearly this this is not enough jesus there's no way we could we could make these 5 barley loaves and 2 fish work. That there's no way this is possible. So both of them fail the test. Both of them totally miss the power of their master, totally underestimate Jesus' abilities. Which is interesting because once Jesus displays his power, it will be misunderstood. Before he displays power, he's misunderstood. After he displays power, he's misunderstood. Look at this miracle. And this is the miracle that causes people to get politically excited. Jesus does something that strikes at a hope, strikes at something that they're looking for, strikes at at an Old Testament anticipation. And it gets the crowd so excited they'll move to have Jesus be their candidate to advance their agenda let's look at this miracle verse 10 Jesus said have the people sit down now there was much grass in the place so the men sat down about 5,000 in number now this verse right here is just so interesting for me Just when I think about what's going on, Jesus is setting up this miracle, but he instructs his disciples, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to have all these thousands of people sit down. Now now imagine if you're a disciple. I mean, only two have spoken, but I think they represent probably the entirety of the group that's currently there. They don't believe Jesus can solve this problem. They totally underestimate the power of their master. They don't think anything's going to be solved here. And now they have to go to the people and instruct thousands of people to sit down as if a meal is going to be prepared for them. I mean, imagine yourself being a waiter, serving a table, all the while you know the kitchen is closed. I mean, it feel like a, just a foolish exercise, right? I have to feel like that's what the disciples are doing. I can imagine saying, okay, uh, people sit down here. We're going to be in a group here. Okay, something is coming. I know you're hungry. And then turning and doing another group and then looking at the other disciples and saying, what are we doing here? (laughs) Clearly this is not going to work. Well, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And Jesus meets this need. Jesus meets this moment and displays his miraculous power. Look at verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled their 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Verse 14, when the people saw this sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus performs this miracle. He performs this miracle on Passover. Passover is the day where they celebrate their independence from Egyptian slavery. The great leader Moses, through all these amazing plagues, breaks, kind of the world power of the day, and the people leave, and basically their free labor in Egypt is now gone. He kind of guts their economy, if you will, and they, they leave, and they journey through the wilderness and come to the edge of the promised land. Moses is this great Old Testament hero on the day that celebrates his triumph, if you will, or God's triumph, but he's there as a representative of God to the people. It's a triumphal day for Moses, and this is the day that they're currently celebrating. And then there's this man And this man is in a wilderness, a a desert place, right, with all of these people, and there's no food for them. And Jesus makes a food miracle. He feeds and satisfies them. This is one of the miracles that happened with Moses. After Moses led the people out of Egypt, he took them into the wilderness before they get to the promised land. And in the wilderness, they find themselves in great need. They're they're hungry and they're starving. And God rains down manna. God rains down food. And then God will provide quail as well. God will provide them protein as well. So God does a food miracle to feed millions at that time with Moses. So you can imagine the Jews here seeing this on this day, this miracle, they think to themselves, what? This is the guy we've been waiting for. Right? It says, after they see this sign, it says, This indeed, this is verse 14, The prophet who is to come into the world. What's that a reference to? Why why, why do they use that specific term? It's because they're referring to something Moses, their great leader, said to their ancestors. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Deuteronomy is a book where Moses is preparing the people as they're about to enter into the promised land. It's kind of his last collection of sermons. So he's journeyed this far with the people. And now Deuteronomy is his kind of farewell speeches, if you will, in his kind of last term of leadership with the people. And when he gets to that point with them, he expresses to them a hope, a a promise, that God is going to do something. And look at the promise he extends to them. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy chapter 18. he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is he whom you shall listen. So Moses, before he died, told the people, God is going to do a work. God is going to bring up a leader and he's going to be like me. He's going to be a new Moses, and he will be a prophet. This is what's in that sentence that's said right by the people after they see Jesus. They say, this is what Moses told us to wait for. Now think about the excitement there. I mean, right now the Jewish people are celebrating their independence. They're remembering the past, but they're also looking forward to the future They have that in the back of their mind. Then they see Jesus perform this Moses-like miracle. They have this promise in mind as well. And now they're thinking, this is it. And do they need it? Of course they need it. They're not a nation state. They they don't have power over themselves. They're not self-governing. Right now, they're under Roman occupation. Clearly, they want to be delivered. And this looks like the primary candidate. So Jesus' poll numbers are good. Crowds are following him. It's a a politically charged day. Jesus shows his power clearly. Clearly he's the candidate who has the tools to do the job, to advance the agenda. Now look at this next verse, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king... Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. What an interesting verse there. It says that Jesus perceived that they were going to come and take him by force and make him king. Wow, this shows how much they don't really care about Jesus' agenda. They don't really care about Jesus' talking points. They don't care about Jesus' platform. They care about their agenda, advancing their agenda, getting their voice into action, their policies into play. So much so that they'll force Jesus to be their king. What does that mean? They'll think to themselves, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start a rebellion here. And we're going to kind of crown Jesus as our leader. We're going to provoke the Romans. And then when the Romans come to respond, Jesus will... Be forced to assume the role that we gave him. And then he'll display this miraculous power against these Romans. And he will vanquish them. And we will get what we want. Wow. They're not thinking anything about what Jesus wants. They're not thinking anything about this one who's displayed this miraculous power. What his intentions are. And so what's Jesus' response? Maybe just as shocking, if not more, to their response to try to take this now miraculous person who's displayed himself to have some sort of divine power by force. Jesus' response is just as shocking. It says, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So instead of running away with the candidacy, what does Jesus do? Jesus literally runs away from them. Now, now why is that? Why does Jesus not want to be their candidate? Does Jesus not see himself as a leader? Does Jesus not see himself as a king? Jesus does. He sees himself as a king. We see this later in the Gospel of John. We see it later when Jesus enters Jerusalem in John chapter 12. Jesus will enter Jerusalem, and the people will come, and they will lay down these palm branches. We know this as, as, as Palm Sunday. Jesus will kind of accept the kind of welcome of the people. And the people will say, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Bless be the king of Israel. So this crowd anoints him as king, and Jesus accepts this praise. We see later in John chapter 18, Jesus being interrogated by Pilate at his trial. And Pilate directly asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus' reply in verse 36 is, my kingdom is not of this world. Now what does that imply? Jesus says, my kingdom. So Jesus does see himself as a king with a kingdom. So yes, does Jesus believe he is a king? Absolutely. So why won't he receive this candidacy? These people clearly want to give him political power. They want to give him their vote. So why does Jesus reject their nomination? It's because Jesus doesn't want to be the king they want. Jesus is a king, not that they want, but the king that they need. Look at John chapter 18. Let's go back to that kind of response that Jesus gives to Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 36. When asked, are you a king? Jesus again responded. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. What does Jesus say? Oh, yeah, we would have a military campaign. Oh, yeah, my servants, would they would be fighting now if I was the king in that kind of earthly, physical way. But my kingdom is not of this world. What kind of kingship does Jesus have? If he doesn't want to be victorious over the Romans, then who does he want victory over? If he doesn't want to overthrow the great oppressor, well then, what is he going to overthrow? How is he going to deliver? How is he going to redeem? If it's not politically, then how is he going to do it? How is he going to do it? Jesus doesn't enter Jerusalem to take a throne. Jesus enters Jerusalem to take on the cross. Which which doesn't look like the movement of a king. You'd expect a revolutionary king, someone who wanted to set up an earthly kingdom, like Pilate had in mind and like these Jews had in mind. You'd expect them to come uh, with the spear and execute Judgment on the oppressor. Well, Jesus does the absolute reverse of that. Jesus takes the spear. And Jesus is the one who bears judgment. See, the great opponent that Jesus was seeking to defeat was not Rome. Was not a political oppressor. The enemy that Jesus wished to defeat, to express his rule and reign over, was sin and death. The greatest enemy, the greatest oppressor, the invisible kingdom that is felt everywhere. The most pervasive and encompassing kingdom. The one that has reigned for longer And has more territory. Who has had the globe since the beginning. Who has plunged every part of our existence into captivity. The great oppressor of sin and death has reigned over all. No matter nationality, age, or social economic background. This is the great oppressor. This is the one who has committed great atrocities. This is the one that's behind all atrocities. This is the one that's behind all conflict, all injustice, anything that is ever done unfairly. This is the one who keeps us under uh, 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 our, our, our habits, under our addictions, incapable of freeing ourselves. This is the one who, who, who chokes out and suffocates all of our hope. Sin and death was the great oppressor, and King Jesus came to be crucified. Why? Why? To conquer sin and death. This is the kind of king that Jesus is. He is not a political candidate who is here to advance our agenda. That's not how he was in John chapter 6. And that's not how he is in the 21st century. Jesus is not our candidate. He's our king. He's not here to execute our will, to give us everything that we want. And just think about that for a moment. Praise God that he's not. How many times have you wanted something, Even, even you could think politically, how many times have you voted for something or voted for someone, and then when that something is put into action or that someone comes into power, you realize your choice was wrong. <laughs> this didn't fix anything. It didn't do what you wanted it to do, right? You, you got what you wanted, but you didn't get what you wanted. I mean, I mean, how many times have maybe you got what you wanted, realizing that that's not what was best for you? See, here's the wonderful thing about benevolent King Jesus is he may not give us what we always want, but he gives us what we always need. And truly, if we're honest, that's what we deeply want. What we need. Our greatest enemy to be defeated. Our deepest desires to be satisfied. And that's what King Jesus gives us. Even though we cannot see it. Even though maybe we wouldn't vote for it. This is what King Jesus gives us. He's the king who gives us what we need, not the candidate who gives us what we want. And that is what is best for us. So so as a follower of Jesus Christ, what does this insight from this passage look like for us in our daily Christian life this week? Well, let me ask you this question. Is, Is Jesus your candidate or your king? Is is following Jesus satisfying to you, pleasing to you, when he gives you what you want, like a good candidate. Right? I think if we're honest, Jesus' poll numbers for us aren't always great. Right? If we're honest, we're not always happy with Jesus, right? I mean, we get sick, we get sad, we get our hearts broken. We get passed up for promotions. Life is hard sometimes. And so Jesus' approval rating with us isn't always good because he doesn't give us what we want. Or is Jesus your king? Meaning he always gives you what you need. And your greatest need is to have a healthy and strong relationship with God. And this king has promised that everything in your life, good or bad, will only deepen that relationship. Will only meet that need even more. Are you satisfied with that Are you satisfied with Jesus being the king that gives you your deepest need? Are you only satisfied with Jesus as a candidate who gives you what you want? Well, How do you prevent that, right? How do you prevent that posture of being imbalanced in one way, right? To see Jesus as this candidate who should advance your agenda. How do you pull yourself out of that kind of mindset and mentality? I'm going to give you something really, really practical, really, really practical step for you to take this week. I want you to do this. I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you to say a grateful prayer every morning this week. So, So starting Monday morning, then do it Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. I want you to do this one thing every morning. I want you to say a grateful prayer. What does that look like? It's simple. It just looks like this. Father, I'm thankful for, and think of something. Put something in there. Now, if we're honest, sometimes our list is going to be really, really long. You may be there for a long time. And if we're honest, sometimes our list is going to be really, really short. But you know what our list will always include and should always include? It'll always include the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Our greatest need to be right with God. And there are some days, and maybe for you, that day is today. There's gonna be some days where that's the only thing on your list. And that's okay. And that's okay because there will always be something to be grateful for. As a Christian, no matter how much is lost on the list or taken away from the list, that one thing will always remain on the list. So you'll always have a reason to be grateful. I challenge you, every single morning, starting Monday morning, say a grateful prayer to God. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for being my king who gives me what I need. Now, maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, right? You're still searching out uh, all this kind of uh, talk about Jesus and God and the Bible, and you're still very curious about those things, but your curiosity has led you to us. It's led you to this moment right here. From this passage, I want to encourage you to do this, to take another step in your spiritual journey, and and that's this. I want to encourage you to make your deepest need your deepest want. To make your deepest need your deepest want. I think our deepest need is to have a right relationship with God. And I encourage you to make that your deepest desire to see satisfied. See, the Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all moved away from God's design. God has a design for every part of our lives. Our finances, our family, our friends, our work, every every part of our life. God has a design. And we've all moved away from that design. And the Bible has a word for that. That's called sin. We move away from that design in sin, and then we move to a place of brokenness. And we feel that. We feel that. In our families, we feel that with our friends, we we feel that at our workplace, we feel that physically, we feel that emotionally, we wear that brokenness, we feel that. And we try to fix it in different ways, we try to fix it with religion, we try to fix it with better work, we try to fix it with maybe an addiction, we try to fix it with with therapy, we try to move out of this brokenness, but we, we never seem to be able to do that. The Bible has an answer to that brokenness, and it's called the gospel. The gospel, what's that? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news about his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. That through his death and resurrection, we could be made right with him. What we so desperately need, God has so wonderfully provided in his son, Jesus Christ, and in his death and resurrection. That forgiveness is right there. You see, but that forgiveness is not automatic. It doesn't, doesn't just fall in your lap. It's not just applied to your bank account. That forgiveness must be accepted. Accepted in faith. And My encouragement to you is to take that step of faith. Now you have to know, if you take that step of faith, that you trust that Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is the only means of forgiveness for your sins, if you commit your life to following Jesus, if you make that decision to to step out in faith, to start following Jesus, if you make that decision, please hear me, you will not get everything that you want, but I will guarantee you this, you will always have your deepest need met. And that will give you peace in any storm. That will give you peace even when your grateful list is extremely short. And I hope you make that decision today. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have given us so graciously a gift in your son, in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sin. Oh, Father, I I thank you that you have not left us alone, but you've seen our brokenness, Now, you don't shove our face in it, but you say, let me help you out of that. Oh, Father, I I pray for those that have been walking with you for years and years, but maybe this season of their life is just so incredibly dark. They're hurting, they're tired, they're lonely. They feel like they have no hope. Oh, Father, I pray that you would, Make it so vibrant in their heart and in their spirit. The wonderful gift that you've given them in your son, Jesus Christ. That nothing can take away the forgiveness that they have in you. That their deepest need will always be met. And they can never lose that. Oh, Father, I pray that that give them great joy. Put a smile on their face even in the midst of the biggest of storms. Father, remind us of that. Help us to be grateful in that, be with my brothers and sisters. When they make that grateful prayer, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, Saturday morning, Father, be with them and bring to their mind the gracious gifts that you have given them. And Father, for those who don't yet know you, for those that are listening to this and they want to call themselves a follower of Christ yet, oh, Father, I pray that you're speaking to them right now. I pray that right now they're calling out to you, saying, Father, forgive me for my sin. I see that Jesus is the provision for my forgiveness, that his death and resurrection means I can be freed from sin and death, taken out of my brokenness, restored back to the God who created me. Oh, Father, I pray that you reach out to them. Father, that you continue to speak to them. Keep them with us, keep us watching, uh, keep them watching online, keep them in your word. And Father, when we're able to meet, Father, keep them coming to this building. Father, we thank you for this day and for your wonderful word to us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, again, I want to thank you for watching, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday.